Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are developed, are devoted. I, I don't know where developed came from. <laughs> are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I am indeed Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, and our chat room monitor, Andrea. Birthday girl, Andrea, await you there. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Andrea. Actually, her birthday was yesterday, but since the radio show is today, we're going to take advantage of it to wish her happy birthday. And I can see her in my mind. She is blushing right this moment. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a terrific chat room with some great folks that join us. So, Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. Yes, we have a lovely chat room, and, you know, the conversations in there are getting deeper and deeper. I'm you know, learning stuff every time, or I have a chance to think through thoughts and ideas. I think, I think that's the, the biggest value to it right this moment. So, yeah, we have, uh, we have some really enlightening conversations there, and we'd like you to join us, too. That is at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. You do have some really interesting conversations. I go back every week and read your chat room and your chat log, and you, you have some great contributions that come from those, uh, those dialogues. Uh, our listeners, if they're not catching the show live, how do they gain access to that chat log you can go back into you know the chat room if you just go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat you can click on it and when you open it after the show you get to read the whole thing and uh, yeah we often post extra links in there extra information or sometimes the guest that's on the air is in there and sometimes they have one of their people in there so again you know we do get access to a whole lot more information and the movies that we show, uh, they'll see those, they'll be able to see those as well, correct? That's correct. Let's go in and play. All right. This week, I would like to spotlight the approaching political arena. Regardless of your political orientation, all of us are about to hear more and more about the stuff we get and the stuff we should fear. And our vote, we'll be told, may be the deciding factor. We will hear fearmongers warn of doomsday events if we fail to elect certain candidates, and we will hear of a cornucopia of freebies and other gifts that we might receive if we but vote the right way. Unfortunately, politics today is often about the best liar, and that usually turns out to be the liar who is able to get other liars to follow them. There will be many polls, and they will tell us what song the choir is singing. And, of course, we don't want to go it alone, so many will join the loudest choir. Sound bites will be shared like spit on Makeout Hill, where couples get it on in the car. Passions will run high, but few will really have done their own research into determining what to believe and who to vote for. One poll will get it right. 
Americans no longer trust Washington, and they want change. The mantra will no doubt once again include that magic word, change. What are we going to change? Why, the system, of course. How will we do that? Easy, by working across the aisle. Taxes are too high, babies are glorious, in God we trust, etc., etc. The glittering generalities know no end. This is what we will all hear in one form or another, spoken by folks on both sides of the aisle, and perhaps this year even by an independent. But what are we to believe? One of my favorite examples of how sound bites become championed into memes arises from two polls I saw conducted on the same subject. One poll asked the question, should poor taxpayers be forced to work two jobs in order to put their children in private schools instead of the failing public school system? The other poll put the question this way, should poor taxpayers be forced to pay for rich kids to attend private schools? Clearly, the polls are both biased, and the verbiage is their method of persuasion. So, of course not. Poor parents should not have to work two jobs. And, of course not. Poor parents should not have to pay for rich kids. The issue was one of school vouchers. And if you're like most, you probably did not Google school vouchers or visit your library to learn where the money comes from, how they affect public education, who uses them, where in the world they are used, and what results have been derived from their use, etc., etc. In other words, the soundbite you were exposed to made the decision for you. How sad. The ruling elite have made many statements in the past that insist that the public in a democracy are just too damn dumb to trust with any real power, including who becomes their elected officials. Who are these elite? Whenever I use this term, I'm referring to the money. Follow the money and you will find who's doing the real ruling. This last week, I read a new study that stated in the title, quote, Caveman instincts may favor deep-voiced politicians, close quote. This article rested on my desk and finally prompted this spotlight. In my new book, Gotcha, The Subordination of Free Will, the many ways we are primed unconsciously to make our choices are fleshed out in over 400 pages. I know these methods, and so do they. The elite have spent billions of dollars learning how to plumb your unconscious so that you will make a decision, thinking all along that it's yours, when indeed it's exactly what they want. Don't be taken in this election cycle. Please pay attention, become aware, get involved, know the issues, if only to research all of the claims. For if you don't, well, in that process, you have surrendered your freedoms and become their pawn. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? You know, when I read your book, Gotcha, as I said before, you know, the information can sound depressing, but I found it really empowering, and you're totally correct. Right now, with the election season coming in, you know, the information in Gotcha goes way, way beyond politics. Um, but right now, you can pay closer attention, and you can question as to why they're doing something. You know, one of the things, actually there's two bits specifically that you have in Gotcha that um, just got my attention. There is the 
the work that was done that showed if you have a bottle of hand sanitizer on the table, people will vote more Republican. So if you're at an event... You mean more conservative. More conservative, sorry. Yes. Right. Conservative because what? Hand sanitizer it's signals clean. what? Danger. Germs. You know, beware. And, and that tends to say what to us? I need to be conservative. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah, you have some of that. And there, there was this other piece that actually talked about how the tables or the podiums are set out would also influence you. And, you know, all of these politicians, oh, actually, the politician that wins tends to have done all his homework when it comes to all of these tools and techniques that will just tweak you a little bit. So when you see something, when something appeals to you, think again and and just double check that you're not being manipulated. Well, social psychologists positive. have a major role in uh, politics nowadays, you know, because, uh, well, in the last election, Barack Obama assembled what is called by psychologists a elite team and the elite dream team. team. The dream team, yes. that's correct, of social psychologists who are aware of all of these things, and they literally scripted his verbiage. And that of his canvas people. Every single word had to be repeated exactly as they had it. So it, it does become a, a very important issue. We, you know, we need to know what these things are because by being aware, we have at least the opportunity to evaluate them for what they are. That's true. And in this whole process, you have the ability to start on the path of discovering who you really are and not just continue to allow yourself to be puppeted all right every week i read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week our guest was professor charles tart and we discussed his 50 plus years researching psi phenomena as well as his newest book the end of materialism Joey wrote, I love Dr. Tart's work. He has been my go-to person for years when it comes to solid research regarding anything from out-of-body events to telepathy. Thanks for having him on your show. Well, Joey, it was our pleasure to have the opportunity to host him, and you heard him agree on the air. He'll be back. Elizabeth wrote, great show with Professor Tart. I could have listened to both of you for a week or more. CB remarked, how nice it is to listen to someone with clear, disciplined thinking. It was great to hear a serious person not taking himself so seriously. Moving on, my law enforcement friend Richard wrote this about my new book. Gotcha. Quote, it's not often that reading a book not only angers me, but also manages to make me profoundly grateful that I read it. Gotcha. The subordination of free will does exactly both of those and does them well. Dr. Taylor is a proven expert in the field of mind control and does a brilliant job of researching and presenting this subject in a very entertaining way. Where 1984 reached into the future to tell a story of what would happen in the world, Gotcha reaches into the past and explains how they did it without you knowing it. This is a great read that crosses all interest lines. If you care about this world, you owe it to yourself to read Gotcha. I like that line, you know, where 1984 reached into the... I love that one. That was that, that sums it up, and that she just did a really good job. <laughs> he did. Bonnie posted this comment on my Facebook page. I am reading Gotcha. I am running to the Internet to check research, sources, etc. I am agreeing with you and getting angry, and sometimes disagreeing with you, like DDT and polio, and finding myself wrong. 
I am finding myself confused as what to believe. When research is funded by interested parties, is any of it true? And your question, what am I doing about it, really has me wondering. Just what can I do about it? I've been trying to make food and health choices based on factual information. But is it really factual? And medical kidnapping has me horrified. But what can I do about it other than voting, writing letters to congressmen, etc.? Well, you pretty well have it down. That's uh, what we all have to do, Bonnie. Gotcha is a wake-up call. Elaine sent me this comment. Gotcha is so well-written and informative that I cannot write enough of the knowledge and understanding that I receive from reading it. I would highly recommend it to anyone who is interested in being true to themselves to read this intelligent and factual book. Eldon Taylor sheds a light that is so needed at this time. It serves your best interest to do so. Okay, Mark and Richard from our chat room exchanged a bit of a banty in fun. Richard said, what would an Eldonism be? Now, that's an interesting question. (laughs) Mark responded by, I'm thinking to explore and control one's own states of consciousness. I'm flattered by that. Thank you, gentlemen. Finally, Anonymous wrote this, and I'm not flattered by this one. I can't stand Dr. Eldon Taylor's radio show. He is so full of himself, I don't know how anyone listens. He must think he is wiser than most, for he is always confronting the people I like best. The only reason I ever listen to him is his guess. Oh, well, Mr. or Mrs. Anonymous, I suppose you can't win them all. No, no, you can't. And some people are invested in who they like best. All right, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today. But I do invite you to opine by sending your comments to Eldon. That's E-L-D-O-N at EldonTaylor.com or by joining me on Facebook. And I want to thank all of you for your letters and comments. We truly appreciate your feedback and support. Now to this week's show, The Physics of the Soul with filmmaker Frank Huguenard. Quoting his copy, Frank Huguenard is a scientist, a spiritual anthropologist, a humanitarian, and a documentary filmmaker. His life took a dramatic turn 15 years ago when four years prior to anyone ever hearing about either Skype or YouTube, he invented a product that did both. Instead of accolades, he was fired for it by management who thought it was a useless idea and a waste of company resources. Beginning in 2007, Frank began authoring a book called Beyond Me that discussed the relationship between animal instincts and personality disorders and presented a cogent dissertation for mediation, for meditation. Without any having any success finding a publisher for his work, he took the manuscript and decided to make a documentary film out of it. Eight weeks later, the Beyond Me documentary was released. Since then, he's done three more films, the latest entitled The Physics of the Soul, which is the first in a five-part series on healing and consciousness. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Frank Huguenard. Uh, Thank you for having me, Eldon, on the show. It's it's been a long time. I've been a pleasure of yours, and it's a nice opportunity for me to share. Ah, it's indeed our pleasure. We look forward to the show. You you follow the show, so you know right out of the chute I'm going to ask you uh, to you know share three things with us, three things that we think are important to get qualified right in the beginning. 
Who is the messenger? What is the message? And, of course, how do we use it? So to that end, if we can, Frank, please tell us about your life as a young person. Uh, what did you want to be when you grew up? Did you have visions of being a filmmaker? Was your child? What was your childhood like? And, you know, how did it forge who you are today? Uh, you know, to be honest, it, some of this is a little difficult for me to talk about. Some of it's a little embarrassing, but I feel like, um, you know, there's three different kinds of people. People, there's unintelligent people who don't learn from their mistakes, and uh, there's there's smart people who do learn from their their mistakes. But it's the wise person who learns from others' mistakes. So if people can listen to the show and possibly learn something from uh, my mistakes, that's a great thing. I grew up in a really dysfunctional home uh, in Indiana. Eight kids and, you know, a lot of violence and alcoholism and things like that um, without really a, re- a really good sense of self-identity. So I don't, I don't know if I really grew up with that many dreams and aspirations, per se. Um, and I went off to, uh, you know, to Silicon Valley after I graduated from Purdue, um, and, you know, I, I was always um, a pretty good software engineer. I'm, um, you know, I mean, I was really good. I was kind of sort of a wizard. And, you know, my career culminated 15 years ago by inventing what at the time was my seminal work. And, you know, life just kept handing me, um, you know, lemonade time and time again. And so it was always a wonder to me, how is it that some people in life are very successful, and other people, who, even though they might be innately talented, aren't successful at all. So that's that's really what I've been looking into for the last 15 years or so. That's, that's interesting. Uh, you graduated from Purdue. What was your uh, degree in, Frank? Uh, the degree was in computer science. Computer science. Um, yeah, so I had been doing software since 1978. And your invention, uh, was that, I mean, did it remain yours, or did it, did it belong to the company that fired you? Uh, it, it belonged to them. And to be honest with you, Alden, um, it was sort of a toy. Uh, after I left that company, I invented something far greater in, in sense of scope and scale of magnitude, something that I labeled um, universal telecommunication. <laughs> Um, and this is well before smartphones. In fact, a lot of the features on the smartphone, like on an iPhone, I invented a few years before uh, before the iPhone existed. Like, had I patented my um, my technology for doing voice recognition on a handset, um, Apple would have had to purchase the patent off me because their version of Siri used the same technology I developed. Visual voicemail, which is another thing on iPhones I invented. Um, currently, there's no possible way to send. Like, if you wanted to send me a voicemail, there's no way to do it. Like, if you look at how email works and there's send and receive and forward and send to a group and reply, reply all, that whole paradigm in voice and email simply doesn't exist right now. I would have to know your phone number. I'd have to call, hope you don't answer, listen to your greeting, leave you a voice message. Um, but 13 years ago, I invented a universal voicemail system. Um, so all that stuff was much more... Um, exciting to me than the product that I invented. Um, but I think it, it really just goes back to what I was saying, that how is it that some people can have all this talent um, and not be successful with it, whereas others don't, maybe they're not even as talented that they seem to go through life, you know, effortlessly. So that's that's really what's most interesting to me. Well, did you think about patenting it and not 
because of funding or or you just never thought about patenting or you just didn't hold your inventions in a high enough appreciation or even your self-esteem that you didn't think they were worth anything i mean what 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 happened there so i i got a prototype built i was doing um i did start a company called mediaware technologies where we were building the the service out um and I was pitching the uh, product of several Stand Hill Road uh, venture capitalist firms in um, Silicon Valley. Um, and that's an interesting process in and of itself, because you go in there and you present it, and they'll point out what's wrong with it. And you go back, and you know it's kind of depressing, but then you wake up the next morning and you say, you know what, they're right. And that helps the product get better and better and better. And so I did file a few, um, what are they called, supplemental patents, uh-huh. pro- provisional patents. They're called provisional patents, um, which isn't very expensive, um, and you only get tw- a provisional patent lets you um, patent the idea, and then you've got 12 months to actually file the uh, the official patent. Right. Um, but I was so swamped with with getting the prototype built, and I had no money. I had one BC firm excited enough about the product to um, consider giving me a quarter of a million dollars, um, and this. Um, you know, they, they pulled out at the last minute. And, and so I spent a few years doing this. And then by the time 2005, 2006 came along, you know, a lot of the features and, and the um, benefits of the technology I was building started to get integrated into iPhones, into smartphones, um, continually eroding away at the feature set. And, and mostly all that's left now of real value is, is the universal voicemail which, you know, I'd still like to build, but I'd rather make documentary films. So I walked away from Silicon Valley a long time ago and haven't looked back. So you didn't patent the universal voicemail, or you did? I, no, I didn't. I, I, I did a, um, like I said, a provisional patent, but that expired. And it, it cost, you know, if you hire a good patent attorney, it costs $10,000. At least. Um, yeah. At right. Least at least that's, 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 I have a, I have some patents, and I know what it, I know what it's like, and I know how much it costs, and it is an expensive process, and it's a very time-consuming process, and then you have to make the decision whether you're patenting a method or an apparatus, and uh, it sounds to me like you would have been ahead to patent a method that could have been easier and less expensive. Um, that's right. That's exactly right, and um. You know, and then, and then Apple goes and builds the same product, and then I have to spend a hundred thousand dollars by fighting a lawsuit um, against you know an army of of the best lawyers in the world. So how sure. how much value is it? What you know? And they do that, so. and they do do that. They take ideas, and they very often find themselves in court over those ideas, and they very often win. And I don't know if they win because of merit or they win because they just wear folks down um, with the power of their. I- legal teams yeah and i i went to a seminar up on sand hill road with an apple attorney actually that there was just a small maybe 12 20 people in the room and he was just explaining their strategy um and it was a helpful session it wasn't mean-spirited or anything but he was saying Mm -hmm. their instructions for their engineers are patent almost every line of code any idea you have We've got the resources. You don't have to spend the ten thousand, twenty thousand to the patent. We'll patent it for you, but patent everything, and that's their approach. And so right. they've that they've got a they've got a whole staff just to do that. 
Yeah, and, and, you know, also so that, you know, our listening audience knows I happen to love Apple. I've got iPhones and Macintosh computers. I'm looking at five of them right here on my desk and an iPad. Right. Uh, we're, you know, in our own sound studio. So they they make a great product, but they didn't get to be who they are by, you know, wimping along. So, Frank, we have a break coming up. When we come back from the break, uh, I'm going to ask you about, you know, your religious life as a young person. So if you will, we'll talk about were you raised religiously. We're speaking with Frank Huguenard about his life work and most recent film, The Physics of the Soul. We'll explore that physics of the soul in the next 90 minutes. To learn more about Frank, visit his website at beyondmefilms.com. Okay, remember to join Ravinder and Andrea in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. A silent battle has been raging for the territory of your mind. Like a virulent virus, the effects are spreading. In Gotcha, Eldon Taylor explores the 24-7 bombardment of information designed to manage your thinking. He demonstrates how new sound bites are championed into personal awareness, becoming memes of the culture. And this results in framing and reframing classical positions, causing adjustments to personal values and history itself. Your every decision process is being managed and manipulated. Gotcha exposes the arrival of the Orwellian age in full-blown technicolor. In laying bare the current uses of the many sophisticated techniques, Eldon reveals what it is we need to do in order to avoid allowing others to puppet our thoughts. For details, go to eldentaylor.com backslash gotcha. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Frank Huguenard about his life, work, and most recent film, The Physics of the Soul. Now, we ask our guests for three pieces of music, three of their favorites, music that has some genuine significance to them. Music is more important to us than many recognize. It can awaken forgotten memories and has even restored lost states of consciousness. Indeed, music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance for many areas, including investigations of human aptitude, intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. In fact, according to two recent studies, music could potentially be used as an intervention to help people with epilepsy, and in yet another study, listening to music improves recovery after surgery. So it's a very important part of our lives. All right, we just played some of The Cure, uh, A Chain of Flowers. Why is this music important to you, Frank, and how does it instruct us about who you are? Uh, that's an interesting question. Well, you know, the the three songs I picked all have a theme of, of, you know, if you look at the lyrics and you listen to the songs, it's all about, you know, waking up, um, going back to the source, um, and, and bringing positive changes into onto the planet right now. All right. Well, we'll pursue that a little more with your next song. I won't ask you so much about I Feel Bad lyrics uh, for the moment. Uh, you know, before the break, I said I was going to ask you whether or not you'd been raised religious. So, you know, that's your question. How were you raised? Uh, what kind of religiosity was in your life? Uh, when did you acquire um, a spiritual interest? Uh, I was raised Catholic, and um, so I didn't have any re- religiosity, <laughs> if you understand the, the true uh, <laughs> derivation, the Latin word for for what religious means. But... um you know, I remember being in the first grade and, the, you know, six years old and being instructed by something by the nun who was, you know, teaching the class in my, my uh, parochial school. Um, and she was saying things about Christianity and you had to take this and you had to believe this and, no, and people who don't believe in this are going to burn in hell for, you know, for eternity. And I, <laughs> I was six years old and I was already cynical. It's like that can't possibly be true. Um, so I, I always had a hard time with some of the core dogma. and uh, But I would say that throughout my entire childhood and adult life, my life has been filled with not a lot, but, um, you know, a steady and consistent stream of, of psychic experiences, precognitive uh, experiences. When I was 12, I was delivering newspapers with my brother and... Um, you know, he was a couple blocks away. We were doing the same route, but he was in the next street over or whatever. And I got this image, just flat, you know, that he, he, he was getting mauled by a dog. And, you know, sure enough, five minutes later, he came down the street holding his arm. And, you know, he had been, he had been uh, bitten by a big dog. Um, and so I've always been extremely curious, 
you know, very curious about these things. And, I've, you know, it's always led me to believe that there's something more than the physical world. You know, it's one thing to watch a television show or to read a book and to hear about someone else's experiences. But when you have these experiences directly, you know, you have a precognitive dream about someone you haven't seen in three years. And the next day you see him in the same exact location, wearing the same bow tie, saying the same things you did 12 hours earlier in the dream. And you know that something's, you know, something's there that, that we're not being told uh, in science classes. Now that happened to you? Yeah, yeah, these happened, you know, uh, and it's interesting when I have a precognitive dream, you know, they, they have, um, you know, Larry Dossie once talked about it, like, like your dream is in italics, like the texture of a dream is really different. And, they, and I wake up like, oh, there's another one, you know, because you kind of recognize that they, they just have a different texture. Um, you know, a few years ago, I was in deep meditation and I saw uh, an ex-friend of mine, you know, send me an email. And, uh, you know, it was so matter of fact, I went ahead and meditated for another 15 or 20 minutes and I hadn't heard from her in years. And, and I just kind of got up naturally and matter of fact, and went and looked at, Oh, what's it, what does she have to say? Like I knew it at such a deep level in my core that that's what I observed that it wasn't even surprising. And I was just like, okay, what? So yeah, I've had these experiences. They're not, they're not frequent and there's nothing, they're nothing that I would ever you know, invest in the stock market on, but they're enough to let me know that there's something out, else outside of what we consider to be materialism. Frank, tell us about your wife. So, um, <laughs> it gets a little bit complicated. I, I need to sort of steer this a little bit. I was married in... I'm going to jump forward a little bit and then jump backwards. Fine, go ahead. I grew, I, yeah, I grew up in this home... And it was nutty. It was it was violent, um, dis- highly dysfunctional. A lot of alcohol. And I grew up vowing, um, you know, to not put my kids through the same uh, drama that I had gone through. And and by 14 years ago, after I had been fired, I woke up one day, and here I was repeating the exact set of, of traits and tendencies and behaviors that my parents had exhibited. I was drinking a lot of alcohol, doing other drugs. I was divorced. Um, and I was like, how did this, how could this possibly happen? Why am I repeating these same mistakes? What I had just gone through is that after a very dysfunctional marriage, I was married to my wife actually for 10 years and I was, then I divorced her. Um, I, I got involved with another lady in, in, um, in Silicon Valley, we bought a beautiful house together in Cupertino, and um, and she was stricken with breast cancer. Um, and you know she was this beautiful, gorgeous Greek woman. And uh, so, if you can imagine, at the same time that I'm inventing this really genius work, with um, that I ended up getting fired for, um, I moved my family three times. And I was busy taking her to chemotherapy appointments and surgery and radiation, convalescence. I mean, it was it was utterly insane. That summer I went through, before I invented the product, I went through five bosses in six weeks um, through a series. I mean, my whole life was beyond the most chaotic thing you can imagine. Um, so it was, it was gut-wrenching. Um, I like your story about the um, the emperor moth because that's basically what happened to me 15 years ago. You know, life was 
was squeezing me from all angles. My social life co- collapsed, my professional life, and, uh, you know, here I was, a single dad, um, you know, unemployed and unemployable um, in Silicon Valley it, with two kids to look after. So, from this, I, I take it, I mean, I, I know a little bit here that our audience might know, not be aware of, but, you know, you you basically brought yourself to a point where uh, you can't get a lot lower, it can't get a lot worse. What is the meaning of life? What is the meaning of all this? I mean, have I got that pretty close? Yeah, it was pretty, that's it. It's It's what's... I don't even know if I got to that point. It was just more of like, you know, <laughs> I'd like to swear a little, like, but what the heck? Like, what just happened? How is it? I mean, you know, it, I'm not here to, I, I'm here to just share my experiences. And if people watch my film, that's cool. If not, that's cool too. But, um, you know, I just want to, you know, most of my work is just a service to humanity. That's the way I look at it. I just want to share my experiences. But if you look at, you know, the same person who invented a product four years before Skype and YouTube that did both, they got bought for a collective $10 billion. And then you see the quality of the film I made. And I made this film with no no training or experience or background or money. I did everything on my own with basically no money. And this guy couldn't be successful in Silicon Valley. Like what, why is it, you know, and, and an example I like to give, we all know that girl, you know, that girl who's been involved with this guy in a codependent relationship for six years and they've broken up 50 times and you see her and every time you talk to her, she's, she, you can tell she's exuding victimness and she's telling the story and stuck in the story over and over again. Then finally, after six years, she's finally able to break free from this guy and next thing you know, she's going out with a guy that's the exact same identical archetype, <laughs> you know. And so it's really been a, you know, from a scientific curiosity standpoint, how is it that the mind works? And this ties a lot into your book, uh, Gotcha. You know, how is it that the mind works? And and what 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 is it that led me to the set of circumstances? What is it that the universe was screaming at me that I wasn't listening to? Um, and so I've spent the last 15 years looking at different traditions, reading Upanishads, Vedantic knowledge, uh, looking at Buddhism, looking at not just the Bible, but all the apocryphal apop- <laughs> tests, um, all the, you know, the Gospel of Thomas and the other right. Gospels that didn't make it into the Bible. Um, taking Vipassana um, meditation uh, retreats and other types of retreats, really trying to get an in-depth, um, you know, worldview of of how the great traditions around the planet have looked at consciousness. Now, some would interpret your story, Frank, myself included, as the universe had a path for you. And the path had to do with what you're doing today, where you're not meeting as the resistance that you met in Silicon Valley, but maybe, you know, you needed a slap alongside the head to get you turned in that direction to where you're doing what you're doing, and you're doing it for humanity, not for yourself or your ego or money, but for humanity. Uh, How do you feel when someone suggests that to you? Uh, It sends a chill down my spine, because I know you're right. Um, I know that, uh, you know, for example, six people that I had approached in my first three films, 
um, Gary Zukoff, Bruce Lipton, Lynn McTaggart, Stuart Hameroff, Larry Dossey, and William Tiller, who had all either ignored my e- either uh, earlier request or had said, no, thank you, I'm busy, all said yes to this film within the first week of me starting it. Um, yeah, talk about being supported by the universe and knowing that you're right where you're supposed to be. Um, but and, and, you know, I want people to understand I'm a happy man right now. I mean, yeah, my story is pretty brutal and I wouldn't want what I went through, uh, you know, on my worst enemy. Uh, and it was I was miserable, but I'm a happy man now and I'm right where I want to be. And certainly I couldn't possibly be doing what I'm doing right now had I not gone through all that. Okay, then that is the story of the Emperor Moth, my friend. So, yes, sir. Let's let's go here. I mean, I understand you don't believe in miracles, Frank. What do you mean by that? What do you, you don't believe in miracles? You just told us about a couple. Right. Well, I like what Einstein said, um, and I paraphrased him a little bit. But of course, I believe in miracles. Um, you know, that goes along the same lines as you know. I don't think happiness is a choice. Um, you know what makes me happy? Nothing. <laughs> you know, <laughs> happiness isn't a choice. Happiness. You is mean like no thing? No is that thing. What you mean when you say nothing? I mean, I had a dear friend of mine, yeah. a late dear friend of mine, used to say to me, Eldon, I'll give up everything for no thing. Right, exactly. That's exactly what I meant. You know, happiness is what, that, that's what we are. You can't choose happiness. You can only choose unhappiness. So in the same way, I don't believe in miracles. Everything's a miracle. You know, you can't look at, you know, a, a, a bacteria, a E. coli bacteria, and look at how it functions and not see miracles. Miracles are everywhere. If I understand your film right, if I if I come away with the picture that I think you wanted to paint uh, with that film, I might look at this question a little differently than you have and think of it, you know, an answer that would go down this line. And you you tell me, you know, if I've got it right or not, for sure. You flesh it all out, but. If we were to understand, truly understand the nature of the universe, um, we would understand these things we call miracles. They would become a part of our understanding as we understand natural laws today. In other words, there wouldn't be anything supernatural. There would just be these, as uh, Mitchell says, great differences between what we understand and what we've yet to learn. Yeah, I would say you hit the nail on the head. I mean, that's a pretty good interpretation of what what I've I've put forward. I think that's a really nice way of saying it. And this, you know, I started off. By the way, it was a, week, a year ago Sunday. I started this. It was August sixteenth, uh, twenty fourteen. I I had this crazy idea to do another film. Um, I don't think in the history of documentary films, in the first three weeks, any documentary film w- went as far as this film went. And before I knew it. And I went out and started interviewing. I've driven 25,000 miles um, since then. I drove out to Oregon and California. I went up to New England three times. Um, I've interviewed almost 50 people. Before I knew it, I rapidly realized that this was more than one film. So to really try to tackle the whole idea of... I mean, science doesn't understand how you heal from a paper cut. you know. And I really wanted to tackle the bigger picture. If someone's giving you... Um, it, it, and if, in fact, if and Larry Dossey points this out, if someone's praying for you and they don't even know you're praying and they have a, a healing response triggered, 
then something's happening biophysiologically. It's not just, you know, it's not just woo-woo, and it's, it's, it may be beyond the purview of what science can look at today, but it's certainly something that needs to be looked at because it's happening, and it's, it's, it's happening in thousands and thousands of cases. So, yeah, the, basically what you said is exactly right. We, we should try to understand this and create a model or understanding this and not treating it as a supernatural supernatural phenomena anymore. Tough question for you, Frank. Do you consider yourself a spiritually accomplished person? <laughs> I guess it depends on what you, you mean by accomplished. I would say this, that, um, you know, 15 years ago, my life was really horrible. And, uh, and so at some point, you know, I really dug into... Um, okay, I give up, you know, a bit of surrender, actually a whole lot of surrender, and really started doing um, not just meditation, but yoga. And and I think probably most of your audience knows this already, but yoga is more than just doing postures or, or what's known as asanas. That yoga is actually a, you know, eight-pronged, you know, sort of a lifestyle that includes meditation and um, it doesn't include the Ten Commandments, but that sort of kind of ideal of a certain living a moralistic lifestyle and, and different different uh, precepts. Um, and so, by 2003, I really started meditating daily. And by 2007, I started to experience. Um, and I don't think this is mindfulness meditation. It's actually a, I, what I, I think is, would be closest related to as um, Buddhist or the kind of meditation that, that Buddha taught. Um, in any event, by 2007, I started to have these experiences daily where in meditation, I'd be meditating for two, three, sometimes four hours at a time of pure divine love. I mean, I don't know how else to, you know, when you get to that state, it's it's a futile attempt to express the expressible, the unexpressible, right. um, but still you want to do it. Um, so I was having these experiences all summer that were just, you know, I just were like, oh my gosh, what is this? <laughs> um, you know, Huey Lewis used to have this song, I Need a New Drug. It was like, oh, that's what it is. There's no side effects and... Um, so the first thing I did when I when you do that is you want to just go tell people. It's like, oh my God, there's this fourth state of consciousness that that's innate, that's our birthright, and basically nobody really has experienced it since birth. I mean, I think a lot of people when they're six months old, twelve months old, experience the Mahdi, but most most grown ups, especially here in the West, are unfamiliar with it. So I, I penned a manuscript called Beyond Me that you know had a lot of the ideas that ultimately came out in the film. Um, and like you said, I couldn't find a publisher. So um, in in 2010, I just decided to turn it into a film. And I used my, it turns out, at least for me, that doing a documentary film is a lot like writing software, at least the video editing process. So I took my background in software development and made the documentary film. Okay. Now, you're a scientist and a spiritual, a metaphysical scientist. I, I'll just put it that way. Do mm-hmm. you keep your physical scientific attitude ever there questioning your spiritual inquiries? I mean, do you find, do you balance those two? Absolutely, constantly. I'm a very skeptical person, but a skeptic, you know, on one end of the scale, you have believers, um, people who are very gullible. 
Um, and at the other end, you've got very cynical people who are very closed-minded. And, and you can't be a scientist at the either end of that spectrum. Or you, in my mind, you can't be a religious person and be in, at either end of the spectrum. You know, you have to be open-minded, but with an eye towards, you know, constantly questioning and being in a state of wonder, you know. So that's, that's really my approach. And so I combine, you know, the science. You know, we, we've got all kinds of science looking at how mindfulness meditation can change the, the, the structure of the brain after eight weeks. And we have, you know, the, the ability to do these kinds of studies looking at fMRI and, and that kind of level of science. But I also think when you go and you look at Upanishads and then you look at, you, you go talk to a kahuna master and then you go talk to a Jesuit priest and you talk to, you know, a Tibetan monk and you just start to distill out all the different concepts and the philosophies and, and the traditions and then resynthesize that into sort of a new model or a model that fits your own worldview, that itself is a form of science. You know, that's, that's what anthropology is. That's sort of the soft sciences of psychology. Um, so I take both of those, and, that, and then you combine that with, you know, the world of quantum mechanics, and you get validation there. And so the, the whole approach to me is extremely scientific. All right. In this next hour, we've got a break here in just about 30 seconds. In the next hour, we're going to get into the science um, as you presented in the film. And... Uh, you know, I'm going to ask you when we come back why the science is important to demonstrate to people what it is that you've already experienced. Why isn't just a subjective experience worthwhile? Um, if you would like to know more about Frank Huguenard and his most recent film, The Physics of the Soul, visit his website at beyondmefilms.com. Now, we have a video for you during the break featuring our guest. You can watch it by simply joining the chat room. Go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in the funhouse, only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto a pathway leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Eldon Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free of your current perceptions and begin your journey to How High is Up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Frank Huguenard about his life, work, and most recent film, The Physics of the Soul. Now, Frank, we just played your second musical choice, Thumbing My Way Back to Heaven by Pearl Jam. So, you know, share with us. Why is this one special to you? Uh, This one really, I mean, if you think about this song in the context of the prodigal son, you know, the parable that Jesus uh, uh, mentioned and uh, and you can see, I mean, this is sort of what I went through. In fact, I wanted to develop a, 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 a guided meditation called the Prodigal Sun Meditation after my experiences in 2007, because a big part of that was, you know, sort of transcending this fear. I, I don't know about anybody else. I suspect a lot of people go through something similar, but we come into this planet, you know, connected to source, God, divinity, universal consciousness, whatever you want to call that, you know, that pure bliss and joy, and then you get jarred loose from that in whatever kind of environment you grow up in. And, uh, you know, certainly in my case, I kind of had a rough landing into this. And you have this, I think most of it, it's part of the human condition, this profound sense of betrayal and abandonment that we go through being disconnected from that source. And there's this really, you know, famous quote that I like to use that when you when you think the world the world has turned its back on you, take a look around and most likely most likely you're the one who's turned your back on the world. And the first lyric of that song is, you know, he's talking about God. At least that's my interpretation of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, well, I I I haven't been around since you left so long ago, and it was actually the human who, you know, left left that experience, that connection with God, because it got too painful. Um, and, and a lot of part of my experience in 2007 was was sort of facing that fear and that shame of of kind of crawling back, hitchhiking back, as it were. Hitchhiking is a good metaphor. Yeah, with, with my tail between my... Yeah, with my tail between the legs and... Dependent and on real, to get there. And realizing when I got there, there was absolutely nothing to be afraid of, and the fear was just an illusion. Do you really think that we come into the world, Frank, in this blissful state? I mean, if you've been to a newborn uh, uh, area in a hospital, uh, you know, pediatric ward, what what you see is uh, often a lot of pain and, uh, you know, a lot of fear and uh so I'm not I'm not I'm not so sure that we have such an idyllic stage that we we are initially born into. Uh, it would seem to me that the whole process seems to be an ejection uh, from a safe area, you know, we call a womb, <laughs> into a world. You thoughts on that? Oh, sure, I've got thoughts on everything. <laughs> if you haven't noticed, um, I. I think being born out of bliss instead of born into maybe is a slightly better way of saying it. But, you know, if you look at that infant, they're, they're, they're in a state of innocence. So, yeah, they may, may be crying and wailing away one second, but the next second, that emotion, whatever that fear or whatever they were experiencing is completely gone. They, they're, 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 they're completely emotional, healthy in the sense that emotions move through them and and when they're when they're able to do that, and in fact, if we can learn to do that as adults, you know, we're also going to be very healthy in the sense that those things don't latch on to us. So I think, you know, for the most part, the first 12, 18 months of life, 
you know, in between wailing and, you know, crying, the, the baby is really happy and, and blissful. Now, many child psychologists would disagree with you there. You know, I mean, you you yell in order to get, what, held or fed or dried or, and then you're happy. So it's it's almost like you're born into the world with these needs and the only way you have to satisfy those needs is a dependent, um, interdependent or codependent method by which, you know, I announce to the world, I'm in need. And I do that by yelling and screaming. But I don't know. Hey, that's off the well, subject. Listen, I, last <laughs> week we spoke with Professor. Did, did you want to add something? Go ahead. I don't want to cut you off. Yeah, um, I, there's this guy, Caesar, who's like the dog whisperer or something like that. I, I happened to catch him yesterday. And, you know, I wish you could have seen it because he was talking about the difference between dogs in Mexico and dogs in the U.S. Uh-huh. And everything that you just said about babies could have been said about dogs, too. And it's just the way that the parents, uh, you know, I'm not disagreeing with you because a lot of what you said is very true, especially here in the West. But a lot of what the babies are going through and that whole codependency that gets developed is a projection of the parents imprinting onto the kids. Anyway, <laughs> Yeah, so I don't disagree of, with that either. That's, of, yeah. that's a lot of our culture, but it's not just our culture. You find that, co- well, you can go to places like India, and the entire system is built upon the necessity of the respect of the family and the codependent. Well, anyway, we're yeah. off on another <laughs> subject. Look, last week Let's we spoke with... Charles Tart. Yeah, Professor Charles Tart about the apparent need many have to find validation for what they want to believe by grabbing this or that from science. That said, the problem can often be one of, you know, I'm going to pick and choose in a special sort of dissonant way. For example, a believer may argue that remnants of Noah's Ark have been found and dated by science as originating in the proper age to actually be the Ark. However, when you suggest that the same general dating methods have been used to date the Earth as much older than 7,000 years... Well, that science is wrong to many. So my question to you, Frank, what did you do to tell both sides of the story in your film, or did you deem that necessary? Um, can you can you rephrase that a little? Because I'm a little bit lost on... on um, sure, you know... <clears throat> I watched the film, as you know. You you, you sent it to me so that I could see it. And right. you you... You basically have testimonies. Each right. of the people that appeared, with the exception of Hammeroff, um, produced a testimony, a story. Their stories are their interpretations. They're not um, evidenced by peer-refereed uh, journals. Okay? Uh, right. Again, with the exception of Hammeroff, who's written with Penrose, and that's an entirely different ballgame. We'll get over there in a minute. Um, but... When you have someone that champions an idea that they say, you know, uh, whatever it is, let's let's take Bruce Lipton. When Lipton says uh, the brain of a cell is not the nucleus, it's the membrane, because we can hollow out the nucleus and the cells still carry. Um, that's his interpretation, not supported by the rest of biology not supported by the rest of science. So my question is simply, I know you're a scientist. I know you're aware when someone is offering you a position or an interpretation 
that is different than that which is accepted within the paradigm they're challenging. So did you think that it was worthy of bringing opinions that would have opposed these statements from these individuals? Huh. Well, uh, you know, I my my intention was really to, you know, and it, it, it's it's quite a, a complicated craft. By the time you get done with it, I had a hundred hours of, of material that I had to craft into a ninety-minute film, and it's it's an interesting process because you really don't want to go out too far over the limb or over the edge and and put stuff out there that's going to discredit the film, uh, and at the same time. Um, you know, you want to put something that's coherent and convincing and logical uh, and clear so, so people can see see what is, what is being said by these people. And a lot of the, you know, my approach to all of these um, people, I think it, unanimously, I went in with this attitude. I said, look, I don't want to do yet another film on the double slit experiment or random number generators. You know, that's been done. You can do right. a series of films on the double slit experiment. Either people will get it and use the technology like they have in, in the, uh, a huge portion of our world's economy without caring about the implications, or people aren't going to understand the implications. And so my, my uh, you know, what I put to each of these people I spoke with was, let's move beyond that. We know this is true. We know that that from Robert John's pair lab and all the other experiments that have been done on random number generators and precognition, that this phenomenon is real. You know, to, to, to the, if you want to try to prove something to the scientific community that's not even willing to look at the data, that's, that's a waste of time. So let's move beyond that and talk in terms of what's next. You know, I, I, Charles Tart um, put out a... Um, a manifesto last year with uh, Mario Beauregard, Larry Dossie, Marilyn Schlitz, Li- uh, right. Lisa Miller, uh, Gary Swartz on, on looking for a, a new paradigm for um, post-materialistic science. Um, I interviewed four of those guys. I was unable to get in, in touch with Charles. But, um, you know, I'm very much in line with, with their strategy, which is how do we move forward? Science has gotten us to where we are today, the modern science. That's materialistic. But in, if we're going to understand anything biological, we need to we need to take into account the fact that consciousness get in, can get in there and change things. And right now, science doesn't accommodate that. And so my approach really was to, to try to present that to people in a way that they, they could grasp and understand. Um, so offering, um, you know, I actually did approach... I interviewed a scientist at University of North Carolina, another one um, in South Carolina who uh, wrote very many papers on scientism. I spoke with my brother. You mentioned epilepsy a little bit ago. My brother runs a lab at at Stanford, uh, and he's trying to cure epilepsy with, you know, pharmaceuticals. Um, And I, I had discussions with him and some of his lab members. I wanted to interview them. It's very difficult to get the kind of people I wanted to have, you know, charismatic and enthusiastic um, in front of the camera saying what they, what they believe in. Um, I would okay, have loved no. to have them, but it, but it would have embarrassed them really, because it, it really, I, you know, I don't think most Americans or most people even understand what 
how strongly and dogmatically held this belief is by the scientific community. I think most people would be shocked. I don't think our listeners are. We've had most of those people that you just mentioned on our show. And, uh, you know, Beauregard has indeed shared why he's in the United States versus Canada because of, uh, you know, the his efforts to move this paradigm and their resistance and uh so uh, no and we you know we run commercials on behalf of those uh, organizations new science and uh th- these new paradigms uh so i don't think our listeners would be uh surprised by that but but with that said you know uh i guess where i get to sometimes frank is when people with the best intentions put information out that uh, is easily refutable, uh, then I think they do a they disrespect the field. It tends to cause or lead to the opportunities for the Dawkins and the Shermers of the world to just, you know, criticize them in such a way that our younger generation just laughs and scoffs at it. And and I think that's who we're losing. I, I don't think we're losing the older generation. I don't think we're losing the middle. I mean, when you begin to question the meaning of life, when you reach that point, um, then maybe you come back. But it's the younger generation right now that seems to just cleanse their hands, wash their hands, I guess I should say, of religion, of spirituality, uh, and and look at all this stuff as just nonsense, uh, woo-woo. And and that's why I asked the question. All right, enough on that. Let's so, go to this. Well, well, well hold ahead. on. I, I just want to say, and I, I agree with that like to a large extent, except we've had a lot of focus groups here in North Carolina, and the kids love this film. They just, they just, it like, resonates with them, and they, you know, they get it. Well, you know, that's, uh, I, I, I know what you're saying. I, let me, let me put it this way. There, years ago, there was a film that was, uh, Psychic Experiences, uh, was the name of the film. And, um, they'd made a tour down through, uh, South America, and, uh, they, dealt with, you know, medicine men and shaman, and they filmed people chewing glass and eating hot coals and and doing, you know, the kinds of things that Western science says is just not possible. Now, um, Lee Poulos, Dr. Lee Poulos, a friend of mine up in Canada, was one of the people that was involved in this film. And when it was first shown, everyone that saw the film was like, whoa, wow, how, you know, how neat that is. But little by little, the tr- some of the things that were in the film, one or two of them, turned out to be tricks, and they were grabbed by those skeptics. And so by the time this film, well, I'll just tell you this story. Joseph Albini, Professor Emeritus, Wayne State University, told me when that film was played in the Student Union Hall, it was just riotous with laughter. <laughs> so, and that's what I mean by... You present a film, and we all want this information, but if it has anything in it that, you know, can be picked apart, then that's what the skeptics grab, and you know that. Uh, No, I know that. Loose Change was put out the first version six, seven, eight weeks after 9-11, and they they, they made that mistake, and they had to release a couple more, but 
all the critics jumped on those couple mistakes and discredited the whole production. That's right. Yeah, and, That's I, right. Yeah. So you, you, okay. Well, all right. Enough of that. Let's let's go to this. You have lots of ex. Well, you have basically six, I believe it is, uh, seven experts in this show. So let's let's take each of them if we can. Some of their individual stories. Gary Zukov. He has the idea that there's a transformation of consciousness going on right now. Flesh that out for us. What, what does he mean? Uh, you know, he mentioned it off camera or, or, or one of the clips I didn't put on here, but it's basically the evolution of mankind into, um, I don't know if we're, we're going, you know, as Marilyn um, um, Schlitz called uh, Homo Noeticus or some other people have said Homo Luminous. That, that the human species itself is, is undergoing a, a species-wide uh, evolution to be becoming more enlightened or be, to becoming enlightened. That when, they, when the human uh, population in mass becomes enlightened and wakes up, um, the, then we transform into a different, a different being. You know, and I'm one of those people, I just pray that that happens. And, of course, that's one of the things that we try to work towards, you, myself, our listening audience. But when you look around the world, Frank, and you see ISIS's beheading yesterday of uh, mm -hmm. you know, prominent archaeologists who preserve, right. you know, uh, and you, you see the killing of, you know, uh, people, innocent people by drones, and, and we see an establishment of a new caliphate with a order that demands that women are you know, owned like cattle. I, I mean, I guess when I look into the real world, I'm not so sure that I'm I, I'm seeing the evolution of Homo Noeticus. Uh, on the other hand, as in your personal life, where you had all the trauma before you actually, you know move to where you are now, the happy man, do you think that's what's happening in our world? We have to have all this trauma first? It's a global uh, emperor moth situation, Eldon. I mean, if you look at globally, I mean, i got to tell you, I've never been more optimistic in my life, and I've been through the ringer more than anyone has. But if you look at the situation, and, and you've got centuries-old and, and millennia-old belief systems, and these archaic old structures, and these um, you, you know, these these uh, social economic situations that in order for us to get from A to C, we have to go through B. And B is when these old structures, these old brittle belief systems and structures need to collapse. And that's what we're seeing in the world right now. But that's just an artifact of moving through this process as opposed to, a, you know, a symptom of a disease that's not going to go away. I, I hope you're right. I genuinely hope you're right. All right, you discuss in your film the act of healing at a distance and some of the research showing folks uh, can be aided by this sort of prayer, even when they're unaware that it's taking place. Please unpack that for us. Share some of the research. Um, well, I mean, Larry Dossey is really, um, and Marilyn, of course, they've done extensive research on this. And, and my... You know, a lot of people have asked. They want they want more anecdotal data, and I can do I can do twenty more documentary films um, on this topic. It's really you can put put, um, put just about anything 
any wisdom-based tradition underneath healing in some form or other. So I actually can't answer you um, specifically, um, because really what I want to get to in the five, you know, I can back up a little bit and talk about the series itself. Um, what I really want to present in the next few films is how these things, presenting a model for how these things might work. Like you said before, how can we look at this and not look for a supernatural explanation to explain away how these healings happen? Um, but there's, you know, there's been dozens of books read, uh, written. Most of the stories are anecdotal, although Larry Dossie certainly has um, written a lot of books. You know, um, Be Careful What You Pray For is one of them where he goes into detail about a lot of the studies that have been made that measure the statistically significant results in having people pray for people, um, even without their knowledge about it, and having um, immediate results. Yeah, Larry's there was, been on the show before. Yeah, and Go there ahead. was another one. Um, I don't know if it was Eric Pearl. It could have been Eric. I interviewed him, but he didn't, he didn't make the final The energy cut. healer? Yeah. Eric Pearl, the energy um, healer? Okay. Right, yeah. He was referring to this. This is a this is an amazing study, and I wish I had the documentation ahead of me to present. And like I said, I, I'd love to make do nothing more than make these films the rest of my life. Um, but he but, but but somebody wanted to refute this, and this happens a lot in this field where people are skeptics and cynics, and they go in and they start doing the test themselves. But there was um, um. There was a there was a hospital in Israel where they were doing this study, and they wanted to look at um, sepsis, uh, some sort of disease that people had there, and whether or not. So they did the whole double-blind control group, where one group of people didn't get any treatment, and the other group of people did get treatment. And he actually showed statistically significant results that the people that got prayed for improved quicker, they got out of the hospital quicker, and they lived healthier lives for the next five lives. The most amazing part about this experiment is that the prayer was done eight years after the uh, people were in the hospital. <laughs> that is amazing. All right, yeah. we have another break. Uh, when we come back, Frank, I'm going to ask you uh, to discuss uh, a little bit about Stuart and uh, his findings. So, We'll talk about Stuart Hammeroff and the film when we come back. We're glad you tuned in today. We know you have many choices, and we're grateful you chose to join us. We love your feedback, so please join me on Facebook and or drop me an email at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com. I love sharing your letters and comments, even the ones that tell me I'm, you know, out to lunch on the show, so that's a great way for you to participate. We'll be right back following this short break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. What is one thing you wish you could change about yourself? What if you could make that change happen with the click of a button? With Intertalk, Elton Taylor's patented and scientifically proven and effective technology, change begins to happen the moment you hit play. InnerTalk works by priming how you talk to yourself and when your inner self-talk aligns with your outer goals. Anything becomes possible. Visit www.innertalk.com to find your towel today. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together. So I would love to hear your thoughts as well. 
Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. back. We've been chatting with Frank Huguenard about his most recent film, The Physics of the Soul. In this half hour, we'll take your calls, so if you have questions, give us a call or adventure comments and questions in our chat room. And remember, I love your feedback, and a great place for that is on Facebook, so I invite you to join me there today. All right, Frank, Edgy, we just played your third musical choice, Tupac, Performing Changes. Why this one? This one speaks, and you know, I remember when this this song came out in '96. Uh, you know, shortly after he was he was murdered, and it was, you know, it was such a moving song. This this really speaks to what you and I were just talking about of what's going on on the planet right now. Is it things are so bad and they're not changing? This is the way things are, or is it a positive song and looking at things? And no, we have to look at each other as brothers. And and so this to me is a really uplifting song, and it sort of matches that. Now that the planet's going on under, it's undergoing a global change in consciousness. 
Yeah, I'm not sure I, I could share that. I mean, some of those lyrics are pretty hard. You know, cop shoots a, a Negro, yeah. and he's a hero. You know, I guess my uh, my experience in law enforcement says, you know, that's um, that maligns law enforcement. And, you know, yeah, law enforcement makes mistakes. But I think right now, especially we're we're just way over the top in jumping down the throat of law enforcement as always being wrong and paying very little attention to the nature of the perpetrator, especially if colors involved. No doubt. Can't argue with that one bit. All right. Well, we'll leave that there. Let's go to, well, in fact, let me sort of set a stage here because I'm not sure our, you know, our audience is really familiar with Dr. Stuart Hameroff. He's been on the show. Uh, we've hosted him here before. But his hypothesis, uh, that's what I want to discuss, his hypothesis regarding his discovery of quantum vibrations in microtubules, if you will, in the brain, inside the brain. Indeed, the theory is called ORC, O-R-C-H, for Orchestrated Objective Reduction. Uh, and it, what it appears to interfere and produce the much slower EEG beat frequencies that we're familiar with. Now, I believe this is some of the most compelling evidence available for non-local mind today, for, if you will, what he and Penrose uh, together have called a quantum mind. Please share this theory with our audience, at least your interpretation of its meaning. Well, uh, you know, I, I had an interesting time um, interviewing Stuart, and he's very, you know, he's obviously extraordinarily bright, and, um, you know, he knows his 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 science very well. Um, but I, you know, half of the biomass on the planet doesn't have microtubules. And yet, his his entire theory centers around the fact that microtubules are basically the biotransceiver that takes the subtle energy field or consciousness and and interprets it and receives and transmits it into the into biology and and much more um, intensely in the human brain, which has apparently more microtubules per neuron than other cells in the body. Um, so I found that every question I asked him. He was fairly fixated on trying to take a worldview that was outside of of his interpretation and trying to squeeze it, you know, into something that really didn't fit. To be honest, um, I did tra- take him through the interview and I got him to say something. Um, you may have noticed in the in the documentary film where we were talking about the material. The you know, the basically consciousness has three different. Um, there's three different theories that that show the relationship between consciousness and the material world. There's materialism, panpsychism, and idealism. And right. uh, Hameroff's been a been a staunch supporter of panpsychism for a long time. Um, but in the interview, I was able to get him over to idealism, which was a it was a pretty amazing moment as I'm interviewing him, and you know I'm basically biting my lip to not you know to not react. I'm like, oh my god, did he just say that? Um, it was pretty amazing. Flesh the differences in those three theories out for our listening audience. Sure, but uh, scientific reductionism or materialism is is the it's the common view of scientists, and it's it's really where science breaks. It's where science is just flat out wrong according to the research but um 
that that theory of materialism just says that consciousness is a byproduct or an epiphenomena of brain function. Um, and this is what the overwhelming majority, I, I wonder what the percentage is, 95% of the of scientific community believes this to be true. Um, panpsychism is the idea that consciousness and the material world somehow intermingle and interact with each other to provide us with the experiences we all have. And idealism is the idea that uh, consciousness comes before everything else, that before the universe, before creation, consciousness was, was there as a primary. This is called the primacy of consciousness or the idea that consciousness is fundamental to existence and that all of existence is a byproduct or an epiphenomena of consciousness. So when you were through with your interview with Stuart, Stuart essentially said to you that the primacy of consciousness, consciousness is the game. Consciousness underlies, uh, you know, the creation of everything. I got that right? He said, yeah, I mean, he said it in, it's in the film. You know, I was talking to him and I was able to lead him, you know, I had done enough research that I was able to lead him further and further down his own theory and talking about, Basically, what are the, what is, I think, I think basically it went something like this, where I was asking him about God consciousness or enlightenment. I mean, I, I, I'd have to go back and look at my notes and maybe review the, the, the footage to get exactly what I said. But I just took him down this road of his theory, you know, question after question to the point where I said, well, look, when you've attained God consciousness, Brahman consciousness, this is what it would look like mathematically. And you can see him in the interview saying, well, yeah, I got to admit that looks like idealism. You know, I, and it was, it was, uh, it was pretty amazing. I mean, anybody who knows Stuart who sees that in the film is going to be shocked. Right. That's absolutely right. And, and what that means yeah. for all intent and purposes is that the information that's being downloaded, uh, through the microtubules that is giving rise to the EEG, is uh, a consciousness that arises outside the body, whether that's an individual consciousness, a collective consciousness. In your view, you see that as a soul consciousness. Is that correct? Uh, I, yeah, sure. I mean, I'm not sure I'd use those words, but yeah, basically that, that our consciousness, you know, predates, you know, I, 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 I look at everything as a scientist. So I use things like hypothesis and a working model and a worldview. But my worldview is that there's one consciousness, something within each one of us prevents us from experiencing the, the remainder of consciousness, at least in our normal waking state. You know, I've, I've had precognitive dreams that I've seen things. People see things under hypnosis or in drugs or in meditation. So in some states of consciousness, we do have access to the bigger consciousness and uh, so that's sort of a hypothesis. It seems to me that this state of consciousness, of, of God consciousness, Christ consciousness, whatever you want to call it, is attainable by anybody. Uh, a corollary of that is that it has been attained by certain individuals on this planet. Some of these individuals have, have attempted either by teaching techniques and practices like Buddha or through parables and choral and, and and, uh, you know, stories like Jesus and tried to say, well, heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of heaven is within you. Um, and tried to, tried to get people to understand these things one of two different ways. 
Um, these are all sort of hypotheses or corollaries of the basic thing that our consciousness is part of a much bigger consciousness, and that consciousness has, has, is the creator. Okay. So we are individual aspects. I just want to make sure I get this correct. We're individual aspects of a greater singular consciousness, but we are not being puppeted by that greater singular consciousness. We're acting at a uh, from our own consciousness, but somehow this consciousness of our own that is coming from the outside in, uh, in the idealistic model, as you got hammer off to concede to, um, is coming through some kind of filter or something, and that's why it forgets it's a part of the greater consciousness, or it's, you know, unpack that for that's me. A, that, that sounds pretty reasonable, something close to that. And again, I don't, I don't care if I'm wrong. You know, I want to put out a model and say, well, look, we know that based on the research from the Pear Lab and all these people who've done studies on healing and on random number generators, that the materialist view doesn't work. It's broken. So, okay, what does science look like? Well, let's, let's, let's look at quantum mechanics and come up with a new model. Well, that model looks like this. Um, are we being puppeted? I take as part of my model, I believe, um, actually, I try not to use the word believe very much, but in my model, I take uh, reincarnation as the major driving force behind evolution. And when you look at when you look at Edward Bernays and what he was able to do with his uncle, uh, of course, Sigmund Freud's Sigmund. research and turn it sort of against humanity. Yeah, what he, what he was able to do against humanity with his public relations or his propaganda. And God, he would, he would have died for television. What he did without television is amazing. But um, what Bernays was able to do was take, I mean, look, you want to talk about gotcha and, you know, programming. You know, it's taken me thousands of lives to become who I am and the traits and tendencies that make me who I am. Um, and so that really is what, you know, the PR firms in the world are tapping into when they're tapping into, what did you say, plumbing our subconscious to make us make mm -hmm. our choices for us. Where are we be? You know, is the is the greater consciousness, plummet, uh, you know, puppeting us or are they puppeting us? Are we allowing ourselves to be puppeted? Um, these are all great thoughts. Where do where do original thoughts come from? Is there even such a thing as an original thought or are thoughts? Do all thoughts come from this greater mind? I mean, these are all some of the great questions for humanity. You read my books, don't you, Frank? I do my research. <laughs> I, lo I love your storytelling. I love okay. your storytelling. Let, let me, you know, let me ask you this, just straight out. What do you yes, mean sir. by the physics of the soul? That's the title of the book. Or right. not the book, the, title but the, of film. the film. Yeah. So what 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 that means is, look, we have these energy fields, and most everybody, and certainly everyone in the audience, would know what a chakra is. And that's just one of the many components in our subtle energy field. Um, we have etheric bodies and emotional bodies, mental bodies, spiritual bodies. Um, we've got nadis, 72,000 lines of energy that are in that subtle energy field. And, you know, look, we have, we have, um, you have a cell phone. A cell phone is there and it's, um, and there's a transceiver in the cell phone that takes, that takes that information in and out. 
And similarly, if we look at every cell in creation as, as having an etheric, a subtle energy field around it, a form of vitalism, then there has to be somewhere at the physical layer. Is, is Lipton right? Is, is Tamaroff right? Is it something else? Is it a centrosome? Is it the chromosome? Is it the microtubules? Is it something else? Is it the, you know, the mitochondria? What part of the cell is the biotransceiver? There has to be something at the physical layer that takes those other energies, which are still physical, but they're just so refined we can't see them. There has to be something that takes the innate intelligence of that subtle energy field and makes it into something that the physical cell can understand. And similarly, at our whole organism level, with all these chakras and all these other things, which all somehow connect to the soul on one end and to the physical body on the other, there has to be a physical interface. There has to be bio, a global biotransceiver. Is it the nervous system? Is it our skin? Is it, you know, like, like Lipton might say, what part of our cell and what a part of our physical structure is the biotransceiver that takes these other energy fields? Um, interprets them and translates them into our immune system, our autonomic nervous system, our, all these other things, and, and helps operate the body. So that's what's meant by the physics of the soul. How, how, does the, how does the soul, which is out further than all the rest of these fields, maybe beyond space and time even, how does that soul interact with our physical body? That's the question. Yeah, that's maybe a $64,000 question, but it also begs a question, doesn't it? I mean, the question yes, it sir. begs is what you're attempting to demonstrate. Uh, when we say right. there are 72,000, we're assuming that these energy fields have already been demonstrated. They've been proven beyond, a, you know. Uh, so I guess what happens sometimes is we mix science with metascience, and we it's really easy to confuse those boundaries. So you're right. That is the big question. But the big question also well, begged in that question is, where's the evidence for the soul itself. I mean, again, I don't disagree with you about the materialists, and I'm just keeping my feet on the ground, and, you know, and far as I'm concerned, my personal experience, etc., and everyone out there that knows me knows I believe there is an afterlife, and uh, we are right. spiritual beings in a physical body. But then my left brain, that scientist in me that was trained to analyze this kind of information says, well, hold it. We just made a big jump, didn't we, Frank? We just assumed a whole lot of postulates in our hypothesis that we it's unfair to assume. We don't have evidence for that. We have testimony or we have anecdotes, but but we don't really have a science that understands that. Uh, I would... I would uh, now, on one me. hand, you're, I mean, of course. Well, it's how you define science, and it's about how we're going to accept what is considered, in fact, this is touched on in the film. And the next three, four, four films are really going to go into answering this question. But nonetheless, where does knowledge come from? And what is evidence? And why is evidence, you know, why is empirical evidence 
I mean, in some sense, and I run into this with a lot of philosophers, and I know you like to dabble in philosophy, but philosophers are, in my experience of doing this film and other films, are almost the most notorious when it comes to writing the rules to a game that only they can win, because anytime you venture outside the rules of the game, they call, you know, they call a violation, <laughs> a boundary violation on you and, you, and you can't win the argument. You would and say so that to I'm Aristotle to or Socrates or play, you would say that to Whitehorn, Whitehorn, huh? you would you would have that audacity? Absolutely. Socrates was a vitalist. You know, I mean, <laughs> there's there's got to be a way. And the research, if you look at, if you're willing to look at the research, I mean, my brother does experiments on epilepsy. I don't go right. through his research and and understand it. I couldn't understand it if I had to. But I accept the results because I understand that he's, he studied it and it's been peer-reviewed and published. All the studies that have been done by, by uh, you know, certainly Schlitz and, and Larry Dawsey and, and uh, Bill Bankston and certainly Robert John at the Pear Labs, this has all been documented and studied. And I haven't read it all. I just accept that the truth is that these, these findings prove that the materialist view of science doesn't work and therefore science is inherently broken. They can't right, really I don't understand disagree with that. My point was about... You know, the assumption of the meridians and uh, the chakras right. and the rays and the 72. That, that, you know, uh, wait, wait, right. I didn't say anything about rays. <laughs> okay, no, but, but that's all you, part of the whole Eldon. system, isn't it? Yeah, you know, absolutely. So the question is, Eldon, how do you take a scientific mind like yours, such as yourself, and apply it? anthropologically, looking at all the wisdom texts around the world and distilling out and saying, okay, this is reasonable, and using some of the soft sciences that have been used in psychology and sociology and applying that to, to distill out information. Now, and, you're asking me a you question. Know, do you want with, an answer? Do you want an answer? Yeah, how do you do that? The way you're doing it and the way you did it in your film, that's how you do it. You're doing an excellent job at showing the story. So... That's how you do it. But then you need a devil's advocate to draw that out of you, don't you? Well, sure. Uh, absolutely. And that's that to me is when it, that, that's that bring it on. That's when it gets fun, because I think um, based on the feedback I've gotten from this film, I've got the other four films all already made in my mind. I know what they want to you know, the next one's going to be spiritual anatomy. What what does it look like? You know, there's this expression, uh, Pierre de Chardin, uh, you know this, everybody knows yeah. it. We're not humans having a spiritual existence. We're spiritual beings having a human existence. Right. Well, what does that look like? What does a spiritual being even look like? Can we, can we illustrate that? And we can, can we say, okay, here's what that spiritual being and how it interrelates to this physical creature. Um, and then in, in the film three, we're going to get into a lot of the different healing modalities uh, and on and on and on. I can't wait to, to have the devil's advocates out there and, and push me up against the rope. That's great. Well, hopefully I haven't been too much of a devil with you, Frank, because I do like your film. And oh, you're been a, you're been a... Obviously, you know what you're doing, and I am I, sure our audience knows that, too. Listen, we have got 30 seconds. Tell everybody how they can see your film and learn more about you and the other films that you're making. Uh, I would like to say go to Beyond Me Films, but m most people listening, you will enjoy the film. Will you get so much out of it? I don't know. But 
you know, consider getting a gift. You can gift the film. And if you know someone in your life who might get some meaning out of this film or my first three films, uh, you know, gift it to them and, and let people draw their own conclusions. Give the website one more time. It's beyondmefilms.com. All right. And I encourage you all to go to beyondmefilms.com. Frank, I just want to thank you for your work and for your willingness to share it with us. It's been a real pleasure to have you join us today. It's been great being on, Eldon. I really appreciate the work that you do. Thank you, sir. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank our guest once again and all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and will join us again next week, same time and same place. And do tell your friends. Let's have them join us as well. Okay. Until next time, wherever you are in the world, remember, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.